While I have you, I'd love to remind you about our new premium channel for the Sleepy Bookshelf, where you can listen to all our content completely ad-free and receive some bonus stories in between our main releases. If you are interested, you can subscribe in your preferred podcast player. Just follow the link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and it's lovely to be here with you. Tonight, we'll be returning to Anne of Green Gables, but before that, I'll give you some time to settle down for the night. Give yourself a nice, big stretch where you are, allowing all the tension to release from your muscles. You have nothing left to do today but get a good night's sleep. That's a nice feeling, isn't it? Now let's take some deep breaths to calm our minds. Inhale deeply and mentally collect all the thoughts still occupying your concentration. And exhale, letting them all go. Once more. Inhale and exhale. Lovely. Last time, Gilbert Blythe had returned to school and was trying to get the attention of Anne, who was ignoring him completely. He picked up her pigtails and called her carrots, at which point Anne stood up and smashed her slate over the boy's head in anger. Anne was punished by having to stand at the front of the class for the rest of the day, and she vowed never to forgive Gilbert Blythe. Later that week, Anne was unfairly punished alone again when she was among a group of students late into the classroom after lunch. After this, Anne went home and told Marilla she did not want to go back to school. Marilla sought the advice of Mrs. Lynde, who told her to let Anne remain home until she decided to go back herself. October came, and Marilla told Anne she could invite Diana to tea while she was away for the day that the girls could enjoy the last of the raspberry cordial in the pantry. Anne and Diana put on their second best clothes and pretended to be grown-up ladies for the afternoon. Anne couldn't find the cordial at first, but soon did, and Diana had more than a few cups before declaring sickness and asking to go home. Disappointed, Anne walked her halfway, and that's where we pick back up tonight. Anne, sorrowful that her first tea party had ended so abruptly, 
So just try to relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 16 continued. Diana is invited to tea with tragic results. The next day was Sunday, and as the rain poured down in torrents from dawn till dusk, Anne did not stir abroad from Green Gables. Monday afternoon, Marilla sent her down to Mrs. Lynn's on an errand. In a very short space of time, Anne came flying back up the lane with tears rolling down her cheeks. Into the kitchen she dashed and flung herself face downward on the sofa in an agony. Whatever has gone wrong now, Anne? queried Marilla in doubt and dismay. I do hope you haven't gone and been saucy to Mrs. Lynde again. No answer from Anne, save more tears and stormier sobs. Anne Shirley, when I ask you a question, I want to be answered. Sit right up this very minute and tell me what you are crying about. Anne sat up, tragedy personified. Mrs. Lynde was up to see Mrs. Barry today, and Mrs. Barry was in an awful state, she said. She says that I set Diana drunk Saturday and sent her home in a disgraceful condition. And she says I must be a thoroughly bad, wicked little girl, and she's never, never going to let Diana play with me again. Oh, Marilla, I'm just overcome with woe. Marilla stared in blank amazement. Set Diana drunk, she said when she found her voice. Anne, are you or Mrs. Barry crazy? What on earth did you give her? Not a thing but raspberry cordial sobbed Anne. I never thought raspberry cordial would set people drunk, Marilla, not even if they drank three big tumblerfuls as Diana did. Oh, it sounds so like Mrs. Thomas's husband, but I didn't mean to set her drunk. Drunk fiddlesticks, said Marilla, marching to the sitting room pantry. There on the shelf was a bottle, which she at once recognized as one containing some of her three-year-old homemade currant wine, for which she was celebrated in Avonlea, although certain of the stricter sort, Mrs. Barry among them disapproved strongly of it. And at the same time, Marilla recollected that she had put the bottle of raspberry cordial down in the cellar 
instead of in the pantry as she had told Anne. She went back to the kitchen with the wine bottle in her hand. Her face was twitching in spite of herself. Anne, you certainly have a genius for getting into trouble, she said. You went and gave Diana currant wine instead of raspberry cordial. Didn't you know the difference yourself? I never tasted it, said Anne. I thought it was the cordial. I meant to be so hospitable. Diana got awfully sick and had to go home. Mrs. Barry told Mrs. Lynde she was simply dead drunk. She just laughed silly-like when her mother asked her what was the matter and went to sleep and slept for hours. Her mother smelled her breath and knew she was drunk. She had a fearful headache all day yesterday. Mrs. Barry is so indignant. She will never believe I did not do it on purpose. I should think she would better punish Diana for being so greedy as to drink three glassfuls of anything, said Marilla shortly. Why, three of those big glasses would have made her sick, even if it had only been cordial. Well, this story will be a nice handle for those folks who are so down on me for making currant wine although I haven't made any for three years, ever since I found out that the minister didn't approve. I just kept that bottle for sickness. There, there, child, don't cry. I can't see as you were to blame, though I'm sorry it happened so. I must cry, said Anne. My heart is broken. The stars in their courses fight against me, Marilla. Diana and I are parted forever. Oh, Marilla, I little dreamed of this when we first swore our vows of friendship. Don't be foolish, Anne. Mrs. Barry will think better of it when she finds you are not to blame. I suppose she thinks you've done it for a silly joke or something of that sort. You'd best go up this evening and tell her how it was. My courage fails me at the thought of facing Diana's injured mother, sighs Anne. I wish you would go, Marilla. You're so much more dignified than I am. Likely she'd listen to you quicker than to me. Well, I will, said Marilla reflecting that it would probably be the wiser course. Don't cry any more, Anne. It will be all right. Marilla had changed her mind about it being all right by the time she got back from Orchard Slope. Anne was watching for her coming and flew to the porch door to meet her. Oh, Marilla... I know by your face that it's been no use, she said sorrowfully. Mrs. Barry won't forgive me. Mrs. Barry indeed, snapped Marilla. Of all the unreasonable women I ever saw, she's the worst. 
I told her it was all a mistake and you weren't to blame, but she just simply didn't believe me. And she rubbed it well in about my current wine and how I'd always said it couldn't have the least effect on anybody. I told her plainly that current wine wasn't meant to be drunk in three tumblerfuls at a time, and that if a child I had to do with was so greedy, I'd give her a right good scolding. Marilla whisked into the kitchen, grievously disturbed, leaving a very much distracted little soul in the porch behind her. Presently, Anne stepped out bareheaded into the chill autumn dusk. Very determinedly and steadily, she took her way down through the sere clover field, over the big log bridge, and up through the spruce grove, lighted by a pale little moon hanging low over the western woods. Mrs. Barry, coming to the door in answer to a timid knock, found a white-lipped, eager-eyed little girl on the doorstep. Her face hardened. Mrs. Barry was a woman of strong prejudices and dislikes, and her anger was of the cold, sullen sort, which is always hardest to overcome. To do her justice... She really believed Anne had made Diana drunk out of sheer malice, and she was honestly anxious to preserve her little daughter from the contamination of further intimacy with such a child. What do you want? she said stiffly. Anne clasped her hands. Oh, Mrs. Barry, please forgive me. I did not mean to intoxicate Diana. How could I? Just imagine if you were a poor little orphan girl that kind people had adopted and you had just one bosom friend in the whole world. Do you think you would harm her on purpose? I thought it was only raspberry cordial. I was firmly convinced it was raspberry cordial. Please don't say that you won't let Diana play with me anymore. If you do, you will cover my life with a dark cloud of woe. This speech, which would have softened good Mrs. Lynde's heart in a twinkling, had no effect on Mrs. Barry except to irritate her still more. She was suspicious of Anne's big words and dramatic gestures and imagined that the child was making fun of her. So she said coldly and cruelly, I don't think you are a fit little girl for Diana to associate with. You'd better go home and behave yourself. Anne's lips quivered. Won't she let me see Diana just once to say farewell? She implored. Diana has gone over to Carmody with her father, said Mrs. Barry, going in and shutting the door. Anne went back to Green Gables, calm with despair. 
My last hope is gone, she told Marilla. I went up and saw Mrs. Barry myself, and she treated me very insultingly. Marilla, I do not think she is a well-bred woman. There is nothing more to do except to pray, and I haven't much hope that that'll do much good because... Marilla, I do not believe that God himself can do very much with such an obstinate person as Mrs. Barry. Anne, you shouldn't say such things, rebuked Marilla, striving to overcome that unholy tendency to laughter, which she was dismayed to find growing upon her. And indeed, when she told the whole story to Matthew that night, She did laugh heartily over Anne's tribulations. But when she slipped into the east gable before going to bed and found that Anne had cried herself to sleep, an unaccustomed softness crept into her face. Poor little soul, she murmured, lifting a loose curl of hair from the child's tear-stained face. Then she bent down and kissed the flushed cheek on the pillow. Chapter 17 A New Interest in Life The next afternoon, Anne, bending over her patchwork at the kitchen window, happened to glance out and beheld Diana down by the dryad's bubble beckoning mysteriously. In a trice, Anne was out of the house and flying down to the hollow, astonishment and hope struggling in her expressive eyes. But the hope faded when she saw Diana's dejected countenance. Your mother hasn't relented, she asked. Diana shook her head mournfully. No, and oh, Anne, she says I'm never to play with you again. I've cried and cried, and I told her it wasn't your fault, but it wasn't any use. I had ever such a time coaxing her to let me come down and say goodbye to you. She said I was only to stay ten minutes, and she's timing me by the clock. Ten minutes isn't very long to say an eternal farewell in, said Anne. Oh, Diana, will you promise faithfully never to forget me, the friend of your youth, no matter what dearer friends may caress thee? Indeed I will, said Diana, and I'll never have another bosom friend. I don't want to have. I couldn't love anybody as I love you. Oh, Diana, said Anne, clasping her hands. Do you love me? Why, of course I do. Didn't you know that? No. Anne drew a long breath. I thought you liked me, of course, but I never hoped you loved me. Oh, my Diana, I didn't think anybody could love me. Nobody has loved me since I can remember. Oh, this is wonderful. 
It is a ray of light which will forever shine on the darkness of a path severed from thee, Diana. Oh, just say it once again. I love you devotedly, Anne, said Diana, and I always will. You may be sure of that. And I will always love thee, Diana, said Anne solemnly, extending her hand. In the years to come, thy memory will shine like a star over my lonely life, as that last story we read together says, Diana. Wilt thou give me a lock of thy jet-black tresses in parting to treasure forevermore? Have you anything to cut it with? queried Diana, wiping away the tears which Anne's affecting accents had caused to flow afresh and returning to practicalities. Yes, I've got my patchwork scissors in my apron pocket, fortunately said Anne. She solemnly clipped one of Diana's curls. Fare thee well, beloved friend. Henceforth we must be as strangers, though living side by side, but my heart will ever be faithful to thee. Anne stood and watched Diana out of sight, mournfully waving her hand to the latter whenever she turned to look back. Then she returned to the house, not a little consoled for the time being by this romantic parting. It's all over, she informed Marilla. I shall never have another friend. I'm really worse off than ever before, for I haven't even Katie and Violetta now. And even if I had, it wouldn't be the same. Somehow, little dream girls are not satisfying after a real friend. Diana and I had such an affecting farewell down by the spring. It will be sacred in my memory forever. I used the most pathetic language I could think of and said thou and thee. Thou and thee seemed so much more romantic than you. Diana gave me a lock of her hair, and I'm going to sew it up in a little bag and wear it around my neck all my life. Please see that it is buried with me, for I don't believe I'll live very long. Perhaps when she sees me lying cold and dead before her, Mrs. Barry may feel remorse for what she has done, and will let Diana come to my funeral. I don't think there is much fear of your dying of grief as long as you can talk, Anne, said Marilla unsympathetically. The following Monday, Anne surprised Marilla by coming down from her room with a basket of books on her arm and hip and her lips primmed up into a line of determination. I'm going back to school, she announced. That is all there is left in life for me now that my friend has been ruthlessly torn from me. In school, I can look at her and muse over days departed. You'd better muse over your lessons and sums, said Marilla 
concealing her delight at this development of the situation. If you're going back to school, I hope we'll hear no more of your breaking slates over people's heads and such carryings on. Behave yourself and do just what your teacher tells you. I'll try to be a model pupil, agreed Anne dolefully. There won't be much fun in it, I expect. Mr. Phillips said Minnie Andrews was a model pupil, and there isn't a spark of imagination or life in her. She's just dull and pokey and never seems to have a good time. But I feel so depressed that perhaps it will come easy to me now. I'm going round by the road. I couldn't bear to go by the birch path all alone. I should weep bitter tears if I did. Anne was welcomed back to school with open arms. Her imagination had been sorely missed in games, her voice in the singing, and her dramatic ability in the perusal aloud of books at dinner hour. Ruby Gillis smuggled three blue plums over to her during testament reading. Ella May McPherson gave her an enormous yellow pansy cut from the covers of a floral catalogue, a species of desk decoration much prized in Avonlea School. Sophia Sloan offered to teach her a perfectly elegant new pattern of knit lace, so nice for trimming aprons. Katie Bolter gave her a perfume bottle to keep slate water in, and Julia Bell copied carefully on a piece of pale pink paper scalloped on the edges the following effusion. When twilight drops her curtain down and pins it with a star, remember that you have a friend, though she may wander far. So nice to be appreciated, sighed Anne rapturously to Marilla that night. The girls were not the only scholars who appreciated her. When Anne went to her seat after dinner hour, she had been told by Mr. Phillips to sit with the model Minnie Andrews. She found on her desk a big, luscious strawberry apple. Anne caught it up, all ready to take a bite, when she remembered that the only place in Avonlea where strawberry apples grew was in the old Blythe Orchard on the other side of the Lake of Shining Waters. Anne dropped the apple as if it were a red-hot coal and ostentatiously wiped her fingers on her handkerchief. The apple lay untouched on her desk until the next morning when little Timothy Andrews, who swept the school and kindled the fire, annexed it for himself. Charlie Sloan's slate pencil, gorgeously bedizened with stripe red and yellow paper, costing two cents, where ordinary pencils cost only one, which he sent up to her after dinner hour, 
met with a more favorable reception. Anne was graciously pleased to accept it and rewarded the donor with a smile which exalted that infatuated youth straight away into the seventh heaven of delight and caused him to make such fearful errors in his dictation that Mr. Phillips kept him in after school to rewrite it. But as the Caesar's pageant shorn of Brutus's bust did but of Rome's best son remind her more, so the marked absence of any tribute or recognition from Diana Barry, who was sitting with Gertie Pye, embittered Anne's little triumph. Diana might just have smiled at me once, I think, she mourned to Marilla that night. But the next morning, a note most fearfully and wonderfully twisted and folded, and a small parcel were passed across to Anne. Dear Anne, it read, Mother says I'm not to play with you or talk to you even in school. It isn't my fault, and don't be cross at me because I love you as much as ever. I miss you awfully to tell all my secrets to, and I don't like Gertie Pye one bit. I made you one of the new bookmarkers out of red tissue paper. They are awfully fashionable now, and only three girls in school know how to make them. When you look at it, remember, your true friend, Diana Barry. Anne read the note, kissed the bookmark, and dispatched a prompt reply back to the other side of the school. My own darling Diana, of course I am not cross at you because you have to obey your mother. Our spirits can commune. I shall keep your lovely present forever. Minnie Andrews is a very nice little girl, although she has no imagination. But after having been Diana's bosom friend, I cannot be Minnie's. Please excuse mistakes because my spelling isn't very good yet, although much improved. Yours until death do us part. Anne or Cordelia Shirley. P.S. I shall sleep with your letter under my pillow tonight. A or C.S. Marilla pessimistically expected more trouble since Anne had again begun to go to school, but none developed. Perhaps Anne caught something of the model spirit from Minnie Andrews. At least she got on very well with Mr. Phillips thenceforth. She flung herself into her studies, heart and soul, determined not to be outdone in class by Gilbert Blythe. The rivalry between them was soon apparent. It was entirely good-natured on Gilbert's side, but it is much to be feared that the same thing cannot be said of Anne, who had certainly an unpraiseworthy tenacity for holding grudges. She was intense in her hatreds as in her loves. 
she would not stoop to admit that she meant to rival Gilbert in schoolwork, because that would have been to acknowledge his existence, which Anne persistently ignored. But the rivalry was there, and honors fluctuated between them. Now Gilbert was head of the spelling class. Now Anne, with a toss of her long red braids, spelled him down. One morning, Gilbert had done all his sums correctly and had his name written on the blackboard on the roll of honor. The next morning, Anne, having wrestled wildly with decimals the entire evening before, would be first. One awful day they were tied and their names were written up together. It was almost as bad as a take notice, and Anne's mortification was as evident as Gilbert's satisfaction. When the written examinations at the end of each month were held, the suspense was terrible. The first month Gilbert came out three marks ahead. The second, Anne beat him by five, but her triumph was marred by the fact that Gilbert congratulated her heartily before the whole school. It would have been ever so much sweeter to her if he had felt the sting of his defeat. Mr. Phillips might not be a very good teacher, but a pupil so inflexibly determined on learning as Anne was could hardly escape making progress under any kind of teacher. By the end of the term, Anne and Gilbert were both promoted into the fifth class and allowed to begin studying the elements of the branches, by which Latin, geometry, French, and algebra were meant. In geometry, Anne met her Waterloo. It's perfectly awful stuff, Marilla, she groaned. I'm sure I'll never be able to make head or tail of it. There is no scope for imagination in it at all. Mr. Phillips says I'm the worst dunce he ever saw at it. And Gilbert, I mean, some of the others are so smart at it. It's extremely mortifying, Marilla. Even Diana gets along better than I do. But I don't mind being beaten by Diana. Even though we meet as strangers now, I still love her with an inextinguishable love. Makes me very sad at times to think about her. But really, Marilla... One can't stay sad very long in such an interesting world, can one? Chapter 18 Anne to the Rescue All things great are wound up with all things little. At first glance, it might not seem that the decision of a certain Canadian premier to include Prince Edward Island in a political tour could have much or anything to do with the fortunes of little Anne Shirley at Green Gables, but it had. It was January the premier came, 
to address his loyal supporters and such of his non-supporters as chose to be present at the monster mass meeting held in Charlottetown. Most of the Avonlea people were on the Premier's side of politics, hence on the night of the meeting, nearly all the men and a goodly proportion of the women had gone to town 30 miles away. Mrs. Rachel Lynde had gone too. Mrs. Rachel Lynde was a red-hot politician and couldn't have believed that the political rally could be carried through without her, although she was on the opposite side of politics. So when she went to town and took her husband, Thomas would be useful in looking after the horse and Marilla Cuthbert with her. Marilla had a sneaking interest in politics herself, and as she thought it might be her only chance to see a real live premiere, she promptly took it, leaving Anne and Matthew to keep house until her return the following day. Hence, while Marilla and Mrs. Rachel were enjoying themselves hugely at the mass meeting, Anne and Matthew had the cheerful kitchen at Green Gables all to themselves. A bright fire was glowing in the old-fashioned Waterloo stove, and blue-white frost crystals were shining on the window panes. Matthew nodded over a farmer's advocate on the sofa, and Anne at the table studied her lessons with grim determination despite sundry, wistful glances at the clock shelf, where lay a new book that Jane Andrews had lent her that day. Jane had assured her that it was warranted to produce any number of thrills, or words to that effect, and Anne's fingers tingled to reach out for it. But that would mean Gilbert Blythe's triumph on the morrow, Anne turned her back on the clock shelf and tried to imagine it wasn't there. Matthew, did you ever study geometry when you went to school? She asked. Oh, well, no. No, I didn't, said Matthew, coming out of his doze with a start. Oh, I wish you had, sighed Anne because then you'd be able to sympathize with me. You can't sympathize properly if you've never studied it. It is casting a cloud over my whole life. I'm such a dunce at it, Matthew. Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew soothingly. I guess you're all right at anything. Mr. Phillips told me last week in Blyer's story at Carmody that you were the smartest scholar in school and were making rapid progress. Rapid progress were his very words. There's those who run down Teddy Phillips and say he's not much of a teacher, but I guess he's all right. Matthew would have thought anyone who praised Anne was all right. I'm sure I'd get on better with geometry if only he wouldn't change the letters, complained Anne. I learnt the proposition off by heart, and then he draws it on the blackboard, 
and puts different letters from water in the book and get all mixed up. I don't think a teacher should take such a mean advantage, do you? We're studying agriculture now, and I've found out at last what makes the roads red. It's a great comfort. I wonder how Marilla and Mrs. Lynde are enjoying themselves. Mrs. Lynde says Canada is going to the dogs the way things are being run at Ottawa, and that it's an awful warning to the electors. She says if women were allowed to vote, we would soon see a blessed change. What way do you vote, Matthew? Conservative, said Matthew promptly. To vote conservative was part of Matthew's religion. Then I'm conservative too, said Anne decidedly. I'm glad because Gil because some of the boys in school are grits. I guess Mr. Phillips is a grit too, because Prissy Andrews' father is one. And Ruby Gillis says that when a man is courting, he always has to agree with the girl's mother in religion and the father in politics. Is that true, Matthew? Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew. Did you ever go courting, Matthew? Anne asked. Well, no, no, I don't know if I ever did, said Matthew, who had certainly never thought of such a thing in his whole existence. Anne reflected with her chin in her hands. It must be rather interesting, don't you think, Matthew? Ruby Gillis says when she grows up, She's going to have ever so many bows on the string and have them all crazy about her. But I think that would be too exciting. I'd rather just have one in his right mind. But Ruby Gillis knows a great deal about such matters because she has so many big sisters. And Mrs. Lynn says the Gillis girls have gone off like hotcakes. Mr. Phillips goes up to see Prissy Andrews nearly every evening. He says it is to help her with her lessons, but Miranda Sloan is studying for Queen's too, and I should think she needed help a lot more than Prissy, because she's ever so much stupider. But he never goes up to help her in the evenings at all. There are a great many things in this world that I can't understand very well, Matthew. Well, now I don't know as I comprehend them all myself, acknowledged Matthew. Well, I suppose I must finish up my lessons, said Anne. I won't allow myself to open that new book Jane lent me until I'm through, but it's a terrible temptation, Matthew. Even when I turn my back on it, I can see it there just as plain Jane said she cried herself sick over it. I love a book that makes me cry. But I think I'll carry that book into the sitting room and lock it in the jam closet and give you the key. And you must not give it to me, Matthew, until my lessons are done. Not even if I implore you on my bended knees. It's all very well to say resist temptation. It's ever so much easier to resist it if you can't get the key. 
And then, shall I run down to the cellar and get some russets, Matthew? Wouldn't you like some russets? Well, I don't know, but what I would, said Matthew, who never ate russets, but knew Anne's weakness for them. Just as Anne emerged triumphantly from the cellar with her plate full of russets, came the sound of flying footsteps on the icy boardwalk outside, and the next moment the kitchen door was flung open and in rushed Diana Barry, white-faced and breathless, with a shawl wrapped hastily around her head. Anne promptly let go of her candle and plate in surprise, and plate, candle, and apples crashed together down the cellar ladder and were found at the bottom, embedded in melted grease the next day by Marilla, who gathered them up and thanked Mercy the house hadn't been set on fire. Whatever is the matter, Diana? asked Anne. Has your mother relented at last? Oh, Anne, do come quick, implored Diana nervously. Minnie May is awful sick. She's got croup, young Mary Jo says. And father and mother are away to town and there's nobody to call for the doctor. Minnie May is awful bad. And young Mary Jo doesn't know what to do. And oh, Anne, I'm so scared. Matthew, without a word, reached out for cap and coat, slipped past Diana and away into the darkness of the yard. He's gone to harness the sorrel mare to go to Carmody for the doctor, said Anne, who was hurrying on hood and jacket. I know it as well as if he'd said so. Matthew and I are such kindred spirits, I can read his thoughts without words at all. I don't believe he'll find the doctor at Carmody, said Diana. I know that Dr. Blair went to town and I guess Dr. Spencer would go too. Young Mary Jo never saw anybody with croup and Mrs. Lynde is away. Oh, Anne. Don't cry, Diana, said Anne cheerily. I know exactly what to do for croup. You forget that Mrs. Hammond had twins three times. When you look after three pairs of twins, you naturally get a lot of experience. They all had croup regularly. Just wait till I get the Ipecac bottle. You may not have had any at your house. Come on now. The two little girls hastened out hand in hand and hurried through Lover's Lane and across the crusted field beyond, for the snow was too deep to go by the shorter woodway. Anne, though sincerely sorry for Minnie May, was far from being insensible to the romance of the situation and to the sweetness of once more sharing that romance with a kindred spirit. The night was clear and frosty, all ebony of shadow and silver of snowy slope. Big stars were shining over the silent fields. Here and there, the dark pointed firs stood up, 
with snow powdering their branches and the wind whistling through them. Anne thought it was truly delightful to go skimming through all this mystery and loveliness with your bosom friend, who had been so long estranged. Minnie May, aged three, was really very sick. She lay on the kitchen sofa, feverish and restless, while her hoarse breathing could be heard all over the house. Young Mary Jo, a large girl from the creek whom Mrs. Barry had engaged to stay with the children during her absence, was helpless and bewildered. Anne went to work with skill and promptness. Minnie May has croup all right, she told Diana. She's pretty bad, but I've seen them worse. First, we must have lots of hot water. I declare, Diana, there isn't more than a cupful in the kettle. There, I've filled it up. And Mary Jo, you may put some wood on the stove. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but it seems to me you might have thought of this before if you'd any imagination. Now I'll undress Minnie May and put her to bed, and you try to find some soft flannel cloths, Diana. I'm going to give her a dose of Ipecac first of all. Minnie May did not take kindly to the Ipecac, but Anne had not brought up three pairs of twins for nothing. Down that Ipecac went, not only once, but many times during the long, anxious night when the two little girls worked patiently over the suffering Minnie May and young Mary Jo, honestly anxious to do all she could, kept up a roaring fire and heating more water than would have been needed for a hospital of croupy babies. It was three o'clock when Matthew came with a doctor, for he had been obliged to go all the way to Spencervale for one, but the pressing need for assistance was past. Minnie May was much better and was sleeping soundly. I was awfully near giving up in despair, explained Anne. She got worse and worse until she was sicker than ever the Hammond twins were, even the last pair. I actually thought she was going to choke to death. I gave her every drop of Ipecac in that bottle. And when the last dose went down, I said to myself, not to Diana or young Mary Jo, because I didn't want to worry them any more than they were worried, but I had to say it to myself just to relieve my feelings. This is the last lingering hope, and I fear tis a vain one. But in about three minutes, she coughed up the phlegm and began to get better right away. You must just imagine my relief, Doctor, because I can't express it in words. You know there are some things that cannot be expressed in words. Yes, I know, nodded the Doctor. He looked at Anne as if he were thinking some things about her that couldn't be expressed in words. Later on, however, he expressed them to Mr. and Mrs. Barry, 
That little red-headed girl they have over at Cuthbert's is as smart as they make them, he said. I tell you, she saved that baby's life, for it would have been too late by the time I got there. She seems to have a skill and presence of mind perfectly wonderful in a child of her age. I never saw anything like the eyes of her when she was explaining the case to me.